Welcome to HealthCom Central, where we unpack theories and frameworks that can help you create more effective communication to improve both health outcomes and health equity. I'm your host, Karen Hilliard, behavioral scientist and longtime communication practitioner. If you're looking for fresh approaches that get real results, you are in the right place. So let's get started. Hello, HealthCom nerds and HealthCom novices. Welcome to another episode of HealthCom Central. This is the fifth and final episode introducing our foundational frameworks here at HealthCom Central. Now, let me say that there are dozens and dozens of other theories and frameworks that I use in my HealthCom strategy work and in my training courses. So when I say fundamentals or foundations, These are certainly not the only ones. Sometimes they're not even the best ones for a particular situation, but they are five ways of approaching health communication that are so effective and explain so much that I come back to them again and again in my work, and I think you will find them to be your go-tos as well. The four that we've covered so far are social marketing, behavioral economics, systems thinking, and the critical importance of examining everything with a lens that looks at social determinants of health. What I've tried to do in these early episodes is, number one, help you understand them if you're new to this field, and number two, if you were already familiar with those disciplines and concepts, I've tried to give you some language that can help you explain them to other people. Now today we're going to cover the last one, and it is, drumroll please, design thinking. Of all the frameworks I just mentioned, this may be the least familiar to many of you. But by the end of today's podcast, you'll know the basics, including five mindsets of design thinking that can be transformative for the people, organizations, and the work that we do in public health. And in many ways, there could really be no better moment than right now to embrace design thinking. Right now, a lot of public health agencies are taking some pretty deliberate steps to reflect on how things went during the pandemic. Agencies like CDC are going through not only soul-searching, but reorganization to try and address some of the problems that were revealed by their pandemic response. My observation from working with public health agencies for the last 15 or 16 years is that most of these problems are not new. They were just brought into a fairly harsh spotlight as COVID-19 unfolded. If agencies want to address those issues, to become less siloed, to become more innovative, faster, more agile, more aware, and more responsive, actually, to behavioral and social aspects of successful interventions, if they want to rebuild trust and be more effective at keeping people healthy, Design thinking really could be the shift that is needed. Design thinking can be applied to the development of individual campaigns, but it can also be adopted on an ongoing basis by a person or an organization. And you'll note that I didn't say it can be applied, but I said it could be adopted. Because although design thinking can be applied to a one-time situation, it really is more like a practice. And a practice is really something that you adopt for the long term and make part of your life. Design thinking comes out of the technology field. It was born at the design school at Stanford University. And the practice of design thinking is what has informed some of the greatest technological innovations that have come out of Silicon Valley. 
When you think about innovations by companies like Apple or Google or Hewlett Packard or Cisco, they lead the world in what they do, and it's because of design thinking. However, if I asked you right now to name a sector or industry that is the polar opposite of a government bureaucracy, you'd probably be hard-pressed to think of anything that's more the opposite than the open-source, hive-mind-driven, nimble, constantly changing, rapidly innovating tech sector, right? Government bureaucracy and technology companies don't have a lot in common on the surface. Design thinking isn't something that you'll hear a lot of people talk about very often in public health. It isn't something that you'll see health communicators use to guide their work. I hope that's going to change. But the fact that design thinking has not been, is still not in the mainstream of our field, I actually stumbled upon it in kind of a backwards way. Not when I was looking for public health information, but instead I was reading a book called Designing Your Life. It's written by two guys, Bill Burnett and Dave Evans, who are professors at the Stanford Design School. Again, remember, that's where design thinking was born. And Evans and Burnett teach the most popular elective course at the whole university that is about designing your life. It's kind of like a what do you want to be when you grow up course for adults. And it has been so popular and has been so requested by alumni at Stanford that these two professors wrote a book about it, and immediately it became a New York Times bestseller. But it has a very different approach than most books in that genre of figuring out what you want to do with your life. The book and the approach and a lot of the tools that they used really resonated with me. Not only is the approach really effective, but it's evidence-based. And so, you know, knowing me, of course, that was one of the things that attracted me to it in the first place was research showing that the approach works. I love, love, love the book as a way to figure out career options and work-life balance. And so I've recommended it to many people. I actually ended up believe it or not, putting together a course on it that I teach at places like CDC. Not a course in health communication, but rather a course in using design thinking to examine issues of work-life balance and professional goal setting. But it also made me want to learn everything I could get my hands on about design thinking, because it was immediately obvious to me that it could be applied to the way that we do public health. Since then, I have read a lot about design thinking and I've developed a course that specifically applies it to health campaigns and interventions. I will say, though, that after my exploration of the topic, and there's a lot of good stuff out there, I still think the Burnett and Evans book, Designing Your Life, is one of the most accessible ways to be introduced to the design thinking process. So I still recommend it as a way to wrap your mind around the practice and become familiar with it before you take a deeper dive. So let's talk about it. What is design thinking? Specifically, I want to talk today about the five mindsets of design thinking that are part of the book that I just mentioned. You will see a few additional mindsets or principles out there in other readings, and they are all valuable and valid. But right now, I want to highlight these five basics for you. First mindset, curiosity. Designers love to begin by asking questions, and especially asking questions with what they call a beginner's mind. 
Now, asking questions and gathering information is something that we're often very good at in public health. We like data, but asking questions from a beginner's mind can be hard for us. It can be hard in all aspects of science because we tend to build on what has already been proven and do that in a linear way. And that is good on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's very rare for us to start with a clean slate where we have no preconceived notions. And yet this open-mindedness to new ideas, this humility in asking questions and leaving our assumptions at the door is really key to design thinking. All right, so that was mindset number one, curiosity. Mindset number two, awareness. This has several different meanings for design thinkers. Part of this is being very aware of where you are, where you're starting from. I know you often hear public health practitioners talk about meeting people where they are, but in practice, we often gloss over some of the details. We ignore the social and behavioral indicators that we should be looking at. I mean, sometimes we ignore audience research altogether. So knowing where we are, knowing where the audience is, is a key part of this awareness mindset of design thinking. It's not a part that you can skip. Another aspect of awareness is also getting clear on what your guiding principles are, keeping the end in mind, so to speak, so that you can stay on course even when there are obstacles in your way, and so that you can pay attention to what is in front of you as you're wayfinding without losing your general sense of direction noticing patterns, observing trends. Another aspect of awareness is awareness of the process. And that means patience, not expecting immediate results, and a sense of the fact that over the long term, things will eventually be okay, keeping that long view in mind but also the acknowledgement that you may have to change course at some point in order to reach whatever your end goal is and providing space or giving permission for that to happen. This is really all about agility. So it's responding to changing conditions, being aware of them and being responsive to them. And it's something that we really struggle with in public health. Okay, so curiosity awareness, and now mindset number three, reframing. Designers tend to spend as much time on problem finding as on problem solving. So what does that mean exactly? Well, designers spend a lot of time thinking about what question it is that they're asking, what problem it is that they're trying to solve, and potentially reframing the questions that they might have started with originally. Because, you know, often we get stuck on questions or we're asking the wrong questions and that can lead us to solve the wrong problems. There are three main kinds of reframes that designers use a lot. One is reframing gravity problems. Second is anchor problems. And a third is problems where we are limiting ourselves by the kinds of questions that we ask. I'm going to give you some examples of all three. So gravity problems. Sometimes we get stuck on a problem that really is not feasible for us to solve with the amount of time and resources available to us. It is as ubiquitous as gravity, and we are just about as powerless to do anything about it as we are against gravity. So what is an example of that? Well, 
For example, a big problem like anti-science bias. It is a problem that needs to be solved, but it is not one that's going to be solved in a day or a year. It's deeply entrenched, and although it's worth solving, thinking that we could change it in the course of the pandemic, not possible, and getting caught up in our frustration around it, also not very productive. So instead of becoming really frustrated by anti-science sentiment or trying to take it on directly, we might find some workarounds that could minimize the harm from it. For example, spectrum of allies that I talked about in an earlier episode, which is a way not to change minds, but to diffuse the animosity and the activism of people who are in opposition to us. Now let's talk about anchor problems. What is an anchor problem? An anchor problem is something that we can get stuck on where we keep trying to solve it over and over again, often because we're trying to achieve some optimal solution that just isn't realistic. We may not have all the data. We may not have the perfect solution. I talked a little bit about this in my earlier episode about the baby food formula crisis and the idea that sometimes we cannot solve it in the perfect way, but we need to do something. So don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. The third way that we sometimes need to reframe a question is that our question is too narrow to begin with, and it limits our options for solving the problem. To give you an example of this, step outside of public health with me for a minute to an example that Evans and Burnett use in their book. Think about if you ran a stock room or a warehouse and you know, you've got things stacked up very, very high, right? Everybody knows what a warehouse looks like, you know, with high, high ceilings and shelves. Everybody's visualizing that, right? All right. So what if you were having trouble getting to those things that are really high up, maybe having trouble getting to them efficiently or without injuries? Well, you could assess the situation and then say, okay, how can we build a better stockroom ladder? And the answer to that question would get you what? A new stockroom ladder. But that's actually just a version of what you do now. How could you reframe that question in a way that would allow for innovation? What would your question be? How about a reframe like, what are all the ways we could get stock off the high shelves? You see how by broadening that question, we've now opened up a whole lot of possibilities that go beyond a stockroom ladder. Now, building a better ladder is certainly one way to answer that question, but what about using drones that could reach those high shelves? You can see here how the wrong question generates ideas that are sort of meh and limit your chance to innovate. The right question, on the other hand, a reframed question, can open up new possibilities for solutions. All right, so we've talked about curiosity, awareness, and reframing. Now a fourth mindset, bias to action. Designers gather data and they do planning, but they don't get bogged down in planning and data collection. Instead, they prioritize taking action. They prioritize prototyping things, trying things out, and moving forward constantly, moving in the direction of your guiding principles, but moving. So you prototype and try stuff, and you expect for some of your ideas to fail. You prototype fast 
and fail fast. The motto becomes fail fast and fail forward. In other words, never stand still and treat failure as progress. Let failures bring you one step closer to success. This bias to action idea is really all about agility and speed. And even despite the limitations that we have on human subjects research and on piloting things, we can still do much more of this in public health than we're doing right now. All right, fifth mindset. Fifth and final that we're going to talk about today is radical collaboration. This fifth mindset is in some ways pretty self-explanatory. It's about breaking down silos, preventing turf battles, working with partners, working with other sectors, with communities, engaging our audiences, and really benefiting from a diverse group of people and ideas. It's also about not waiting for permission to work together or permission to help and learn from each other. We all know that collaboration needs to be a bigger part of what we do in public health, but somehow we still have these silos and fiefdoms and artificial divisions. When we talk about radical collaboration in design thinking, we're talking about something that goes well beyond lip service or lukewarm attempts. And it's pretty clear that this is a mindset that we still need to develop in public health. So those are the five major mindsets of design thinking, curiosity, awareness, reframing, bias to action, and radical collaboration. And these mindsets are what have guided some of the greatest technology innovations of our lifetimes by helping companies, some of the companies that I mentioned at the beginning out in Silicon Valley, to find needs, to follow paths where none have existed before to ask the right questions, try a lot of different possibilities as quickly as possible, and bring together many people, that hive mind, to work on solutions. There's no single right answer how to improve health outcomes and health equity. But if we want to find innovative ways to move quickly toward those goals, design thinking is an approach, a practice, that public health would do well to adapt from the technology field into our own. One other important distinction between design thinking and other approaches is that design thinking is not the same as engineering. And too often in public health, we approach things as if they can be engineered. In engineering, you can test something over and over again and come up with one best result. For example, in laboratory conditions, you could test the brakes on a car over and over again to determine which ones can stop a car the fastest. And if you were able to do that test many, many times, you would be able to determine the best configuration of brakes, the best way to engineer those brakes. Engineering works well when you can collect a lot of data in advance and have a pretty good idea that things are going to look like that in the real world. But that's not the way social and behavioral science works. We don't have a crystal ball. We cannot predict exactly and with accuracy how people are going to respond. We have to stay agile, we have to stay innovative, and that is why design is a better approach. Going back to the idea of the car for a moment, think about other aspects of a car. There's no one right silhouette for a car. There's no one right way for how the interior should look. There are many, many ways a car can be styled. The way a car looks isn't engineered, it's designed. 
Design is the approach to take when there are many ways to solve a problem. And it's similar in health. There's no one right way to be healthy. There's no one right way to develop a health communication campaign. You could engineer a medication to be the exact correct formulation by doing a series of tests, but persuading people to take the medication, there's no one right way to do that. Often research can point to what's been effective with one group, but not always to what is the best because there's no single correct answer. And situations in which there are many possibilities are the situations that call for design. Show me almost any public health campaign that's out there, any public health intervention, and I'll show you a way that it could have been improved with design thinking. That goes for our approach to the pandemic as well. But for design thinking to work, some organizations are going to need to make big changes, both their policies and their practices for how they do things. Changes that give people permission to ask questions, to ask hard questions, and to ask questions with a beginner's mind. That give permission to get better at being aware of clues and signposts, to reframe questions, to try solutions quickly, and to work together instead of working in silos. All of this is possible with design thinking. I hope this has been a good introduction to all of you to the gist of design thinking. It's designed just to give you a little bit of what it involves. And then we're going to be coming back with a series here at HealthCom Central where we will explore several key issues, such as the way that we could specifically improve data gathering by approaching things with a beginner's mind. And we'll use some actual case studies to talk through that. How to get better at ideating, at, at being creative and innovative. And the benefits, yes, benefits of failure. For now, though, I'm going to point you towards some resources in the episode notes that I think will be very helpful to you to get a grounding in the idea of design thinking and how the approach differs from other things that you may have tried in the past. The last thing I want to say today as we wrap up this tour of our fundamental frameworks is to say that all of these, design thinking, systems thinking, social marketing, behavioral economics, and certainly social determinants of health are things that can be layered and combined with other theories and frameworks. So for example, you can apply design thinking to a campaign that uses social norms, or you can use stages of change together with behavioral economics, and so on. And as you become more skilled and conversant with these concepts and constructs, you'll be able to use them to really create tailored interventions and campaigns. First, though, you have to increase your fluency with them and Helping you to do just that is our mission here at HealthCom Central. As always, thank you so much for joining us today. Tell your friends and colleagues, HealthCom Central is the only podcast of its kind, and it's available everywhere that you get your podcasts. Until next week, stay well, stay safe, and stay science-based. Bye for now. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment now to leave a rating and review. Be sure to subscribe to HealthCom Central on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have friends and colleagues who should be part of our community, please share the link.